0: The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. I click the Blue Go Live button now. Click. Click. and we're live. It is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. 3 days before my no, 2 days before Guy Fox Day. 5:01 p.m. and we have important dog shirt news. I am going to make Genevieve take up the whole screen so she can tell you her awesome dog shirt news.
1: It has finally arrived everyone. I know you were almost as excited as I was. You but have to this, move your hair. Jennifer. You gotta get your hair out of the way. The hair is almost part of the shirt though. Cause it kind of yeah. matches. <laughs> it is a it, groovy hound. It wow. It
0: is a fabulous dog shirt. Um, <laughs> it's
2: like almost like, oh, crime against humanity, that shirt. I, I love it I, so much.
0: I love that shirt. All right. So I also have dog shirt news, which is about my awesome dog shirt that I ordered the same time that Genevieve ordered, uh, that dog shirt. And I just want to, I'm just going to read you my correspondence with, uh, clothing monster, the company that, um, uh, sold me the dog shirt. Um, uh, and then read you their response. Um, so this morning, I, as you all know, I ordered uh, a large shipment of new dog shirts. Um, eight of them, to be precise. dog
2: shirts, like, generally? Does
0: she even I know mean, about this phenomenon? Exist.
2: Yeah, Ben wears so, them all the time, and people find them a little bit... What is it? Like, a little bit nipply? Uh, or nipply like,
0: and weird is nipply the... Nipply and um, weird,
2: and, like, also that they're disconcerting, and that often... If you're walking down the street and you see a person walking towards you with like a like like a three dimensionally like kind of like designed dog face on a shirt, it's a little bit disconcerting because there's this huge nose and the eyes. But Ben just sits on screen like this and all you can see is the eyes. (laughs) And so it's just a little nipply and weird. And a lot of people pointed this out.
0: Um, but a lot of people, the other thing about dog shirts is that they are a Rorschach test. People either love them or hate them. And I enjoy both reactions. So people walk up to me on the street. Oh, my God, I love your shirt so much, which is a great confirmation. But people will also walk up to you on the street and like, that shirt makes me uncomfortable. And I'm like, that's, that's really not my problem. <laughs> anyway, um, I, uh, this morning wrote to Clothing Monster to check in on my, one of my dog shirts. Um, I wrote, Dear Mr. or Ms. Monster, I write in reference to the order below. I'm a big fan of your work and products. In fact, I wear a dog shirt from Clothing Monster virtually every day on the live stream show in lieu of fun, at in lieu of fun show, close parentheses. So imagine my excitement when the package associated with this order arrived and I envisioned myself on live television wearing a, quote, fluffy poodle t-shirt, unquote having countless viewers mentally questioning my masculinity and my gamely not caring, thus showing the sort of self-confidence and blasé disregard for social expectations that is, in fact, the essence of non-toxic masculinity. And imagine my bitter disappointment when I opened the package to discover that the Fluffy Poodle t-shirt was missing. I cried and cried. But then I pulled myself together and said... I'm sure the good folks at Clothing Monster will make this right, hence this letter. Can you please send me my fluffy poodle t-shirt with many thanks, B. And barely two minutes after I sent this, I got a response from customer service at clothingmonster.com, which reads in its entirety, Dear Benjamin, we are very sorry for the delay The last t-shirt is currently in progress. We will do our best to ship it shortly. You will get a tracking number in your email address. We apologize for any inconvenience we might have caused. Thank you, customer service, which was a very uh, elegant way of them telling me that you are not allowed to have fun anymore, but you will eventually, be allowed to have a fluffy poodle t-shirt. And in the meantime, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have the very patient and most bewildered, Alicia Wanless, who- You're a
2: good sport, Alicia. uh,
0: Welcome to our very eccentric show. Um, So I wanna start with a really important question, which is, how did you start racing sailboats?
3: <laughs> not not at all what I was expecting. So that that fits the eccentricity part. Um, how did I start racing sailboats? My friend, Tim, uh, sucked me into it. He has been doing it for years in the Ottawa River, uh, short distance ones. And um, I wanted to, but I'm never really around like twice in the same week I before plague. I was traveling a lot. And uh, so he said, let's try a long distance race once. And we did. And there was no wind. And it was the longest race of the season. And we sat out there and baked in the burning sun, not even going forward at some points. We were going backwards. And I'm a super competitive person. And so I did not suggest quitting at all. I think about the 10 hour mark when we weren't even halfway, Tim was like, we're we're bailing. And uh and and that point forward he, he realized that nobody else was going to endure those races quite like I would. And we've done it every season since.
0: And um all right, so you What kind of sailboats uh, do you race?
3: Uh what <laughs> It's a Tanzer 22, I believe, uh, and it's just—I mean, we take it out, so it's just the two of us. We don't use like a spinnaker sail or anything. The last race of the season, I was nearly swept overboard. That was a lot of fun.
0: Wow! And so, so wh- yeah, tell us the story. We want to—we want to hear the—and uh, include all the uh, the maritime uh, 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 vocabulary that you would use.
3: So this is like where I I real, I start to share these antique like these historic phrases and what they really mean. Like I know what a bee in your bonnet really feels like. It's not fun. Um, really, not related to sailing, but we're eighteen twelve. We so that we we were finishing the last race and we really needed to win it because we wanted to win the series because again we're super competitive and uh, everything was fine and I got told to go up on the bow get the time great turn around and take the pole out because we were spinning wing we were sailing wing and wing the two sails were out and uh I took it out and a freak storm came just after I got the pole out and the next minute I'm looking over the water and I'm thinking that's it I'm done I'm going in and I look over and I'm yelling at Tim, and he drops the sail we've got like no control over this boat crazy storm I've got this pole wedged in between me and the uh, the wires that go down and, uh, and managed to crawl back and like, hold on to the mass for dear life. It was, it was pretty wild because I'm pretty sure I would have been trying to get to shore. There was no way I was getting back on the boat. Oh, wow. That's crazy. All right.
0: So you live in Canada, you work in Washington and you go to school in England. So I want to ask, Whoa. uh, uh, do you have uh, a national identity crisis?
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> I was gonna. Um, did you have a clone or something? Or a like, flyer program that you would tell yeah, us is good?
3: Okay, uh, where to begin? Well, I'm I'm Canadian, obviously. I think um, I don't think I have an identity, a national identity crisis. I've got problems with words. If I talk to you in one one conversation, I may say data, and if you say data to me, I might turn around and say data. I've I've got no bearing on English anymore,
4: apparently.
0: Yeah. All right. So you I'm going to get us started on the we're now 10 minutes in and we haven't even talked about begun talking about information operations yet. So which, uh, which we should do. Um, You run, I think, the only program at a think tank that is kind of devoted to studying influence operations and how to think about them and what to do about them so tell us about like that's a like super uh i think it's like pretty interesting that there is actually a think tank program on them it's also interesting that there's only one at least that i know of are there any I don't others? I think
3: we're alone. I mean, there's lots of places researching influence operations or aspects of it like disinformation. But um are there
0: other like most of them are university based, I think, right?
3: Well, what about DFR Lab? They're at Atlantic Council. Um ASPI, guess... uh, the Australian Strategic uh, Policy Institute in Australia does. Um Brookings has before and they do now. They they took uh Jessica Brandt She's definitely working in the space, GMF,
0: there's a lot. All right. So what is the what is the parameters? What are the parameters of what you guys are looking at and what are you trying to do?
3: So our program is weird in that we do look more at the field and one of the first things we tried to do in the last year and a half was really understand who's doing what and how and what do we know about influence operations, what do we know about their impact, what do we know about the efficacy or even the impact of interventions, um, so that, that's where we're a little bit weirder um, and we do kind of try to be more of a glue between different stakeholders, which is not always that easy.
0: What do you mean? What is what is the glue between flesh that out for uh, for people who are new to the subject? What do you mean when you say the glue of different stakeholders?
3: So I have been researching how propaganda is changing in a digital age since about 2014, and my work has involved in At that time, I was actually running strategic communications campaigns at a think tank in Ottawa. Um, And then I ended up working with military and governments and the tech sector. Uh, I'm still finishing up a PhD. So I've got some strong links to academia. And one of the things I was finding was that between these different groups of people, they're not even speaking the same language on the same topic. They don't have a lot of understanding for each other's roles and the trust is diminishing increasingly between many of them. And so this is this is a challenge. And part of the issue is that a lot of the funders in this space fund projects. So like research projects, case studies, these types of things. And there isn't a whole lot of investment into actually convening and bringing multi-stakeholders together to work on tangible things and come up with some answers. And that's what i mean in terms of we try to do different types of convenings with different people from industry government academia uh, civil society um get them on the same page and flesh out some ideas for answers like around transparency reporting for example
2: yeah so do you think that transparency reporting is like a solution for digital propaganda like i'm kind of curious like in like all of the miss and all all of the kind of the and disinformation stuff, that's like conversations that are happening. I, I'm, I I feel like people have gone in two directions, the concerted types of activity that take place by like foreign actors or not even just foreign, but like, but like but any the concerted activity in authentic behavior and then kind of like which i imagine propaganda mostly covers i mean guess it's not inauthentic well that's actually a good question is propaganda inauthentic <laughs>
3: So we've, that's one of the reasons why we move more towards a term of influence operations, which actually, in, in retrospect, isn't much better than propaganda. I started moving away from the word propaganda because it's such a contested concept. And you ask 10 different people and you're going to get 10 different definitions of what it is. Um, so influence operations, we take it to mean the organized efforts to, um, to affect an audience or an outcome. And it has to happen over time. It doesn't necessarily have to be false in our definition and it doesn't have to be foreign originating in our definition. The point is that some group of people are trying to affect an audience and an outcome. Now, the problem with that is that there aren't a lot of lines in the sand that are very clear and objective to discern what is acceptable from what isn't. And this leaves us in a bit of a quandary about how do we actually go about doing anything. Now, coming back to those literature reviews I mentioned, so we actually had Princeton's uh, Empirical Studies of Conflict project do two meta studies for us. One was looking at the academic literature on um, the known measurable effects of aspects of influence operation, like misinformation, misinformation, and the other one was on the academic literature on interventions. And what we found is that we don't really know a whole lot. Um, one. The effects, the most of the research is on traditional media, not digital media, and what exists in digital media is very short term and its effects, if at all, usually kind of couched around a study that doesn't replicate the real world environment. And then the second thing on an efficacy of interventions is the same thing. We don't know much about what's happening with the platforms. So most of the research is on fact checking, Pre bunking um, disclosure. Now,
2: so can you company, give me like a, yeah. for instance, like, I mean, because like, I'm like, I'm genuinely kind of like, okay, so actually, like, to be totally, I was, so earlier today, I just went down like a total like wormhole and reread all of the stuff about, um, who's um, Ben, how do you pronounce the guy's last name that the kid who got, who is, for, um, who's trapped in North Korea, Otto, um, like for stealing the profit, uh, you're muted Ben, who's stealing the propaganda off the wall or trying to in warm back. War- what is it? Warback.
0: Warm back. Warm back. I okay. believe.
2: Anyways, I was reading all of this stuff about him and then that actually got me into this wormhole about like. It was just like I kind of was thinking about how classic propaganda the stuff he was trying to steal was. It literally was kind of like all hail, like we love, like and it was just kind of a it was a classic kind of poster. And I'm then sorry, was, it's
4: warm beer. Yeah,
2: that's right there. Okay. Uh,
4: sorry.
0: Warm beer. Warm beer.
2: I just I wasn't sure how yeah. Um but anyways, I my That kind of got me into, then I was like giving a talk on mis- and disinformation today and like foreign interference in elections. And I was kind of like, well, like when is it propaganda? And when is it, I don't know, like basically how are we drawing these lines from a content perspective? I look at a lot of this stuff from... content neutral you chase the behavior of the content and and how it spreads and how it disseminates and how it gets like kind of placed into various types of platforms and infrastructures um but what i'm kind of like interested in is like i can't tell like if it's influenced like what isn't influence peddling isn't something like always trying to kind of like tell you how to think or what to do or how to think about something like I mean as you said it was like as you realized yourself that it was not that much better definition than propaganda but I don't know can you just give us a couple like instances of kind of stuff that you guys look at
3: So, I want to back up and say we don't actually go and investigate campaigns. What we're looking at more is the field and the general understanding and what can we do about anything, where do we go? Um, So, I, I mean, when it comes to influence operations or even propaganda. I think the difference here is that it's got to be more than a single poster. So uh, North Korea, if it's running multiple posters and controlling its news and trying to put out a face of itself to the world that it wants to be believed and change something, that would would be an influence operation. The question would be, where's the line and what's acceptable of it? Are they lying? Are they inauthentic? Are they stealing information and then leaking that to be able to sway audiences a certain way? Um, Those are all lines in the sand that may be problematic. Do we
2: care Um, whether uh, they're doing it
3: in North Korea or outside of North Korea? Like,
2: like, I mean, like, how do you discern those things? But what
0: about voter, uh, you know, campaigns to encourage people to vote?
3: See, I would say this is an influence operation, but one that in a democracy we would like to see happen so long as it's not deceitful or, you know, pushing people. Yeah, I,
0: I think it's impossible to distinguish from a nefarious agree with that. nefarious influence operation except in the sense that we think it's good
1: is there also just the distinction that it's domestic instead of an international, international like, intent, in, like sorry that was what did you say genevieve that was just feedback
0: out. on mike godwin's feed
1: oh no don't I worry saying, about it d- do we make the distinction that it's domestic i mean obviously we assume it's a good but also is it distinguishable because it's domestic and we're not trying to influence a different country's politics
2: well that's kind of what my point was too with the north North korean like do we care whether north korea has its own propaganda like or is it only propaganda like or do we only is it only that we're only interested in if it's trying to do that in other in other environments
3: i think the question is who is we and who gets to decide, Um, I feel like in democracies we really haven't had great conversations about the role of influence within democracies and how prevalent it is and how it could potentially undermine the legitimacy of the very state if people have lost the ability to make decisions of their own free will. Um, And that to me fundamentally is one of the greatest problems in even tackling this, like why are we intervening in the information environment? Why does it matter? What values are driving us and what do we hope to achieve in doing it? All conversations we badly need to have.
1: Do you find that there's a distinct perspective from a Canadian perspective, an American perspective, a British perspective on this topic?
3: There's definitely a split in terms of how each the, each of those countries responds to things. I would argue that in general, Canadians and Brits, which are quite diverse in their own, uh, have l- fewer concerns about the free speech problem. I mean, okay. every time we, this comes up, like if you're going to do something about it, right? So let's say it's content moderation that you think is the answer. I'm not mm-hmm. sure because there isn't a lot of research on the efficacy of it or the impact of it. Um, so, an American would be like, let everything go, whereas a Canadian might see hate speech and think it's a little bit more clear and say, no, this shouldn't be allowed at all. However, I think that's also changing because information ecosystems are really intertwined, especially in a digital age. And there is much cross traffic in the transatlantic English space in particular. I mean, in, in past research years ago, when I did do case studies on these things, I was amazed to see how much of the different, especially alternative news outlets would be picked up in Canadian, British or American Facebook uh,
0: communities. Yeah. So I, I think the concept of an influence operation is a really interesting one, because when you say the word influence operation, it, it actually suggests the Freudian slip that Kate engaged in earlier, which was to say influence peddling. Um, uh, and. I think what we mean when we say for a lot of people, when we say influence operations, what we mean is nefarious, uh, covert influence operations, whereas a lot of influence operations like, you know, I wanted people to vote in Virginia yesterday and I wish more of them had, um, are actively good and are just expressions of free uh, free speech and free speech, uh, you know, organizing. And I I really, I think there's no principled way to distinguish between good influence operations and bad influence operations, except in the sense that we all kind of know them when we see them.
3: I think that's been kind of how it's been treated and value judgments after the fact, uh, that doesn't exactly help companies or anybody trying to deal with it at scale.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the, um, the Facebook solution to this, which is to not go anywhere near the word influence, but to focus on objective criteria like coordinated and authentic behavior, Um, And they, you know, it has some merit uh, in that it's objective, but it also has some honestly silliness in the sense that it's not
2: objective.
0: Well, but in a coordinated and authentic behavior is often harmless
2: together are a little bit more objective.
0: Right. But inauthentic is not
2: objective. (laughs)
0: Look, you put it together and... It works a certain percentage of the time, but it also leaves certain things uh, unaddressed. And similarly, um, I think there's a, you could design an influence operation that would not be coordinated in authentic behavior and yet would be uh, pretty objectionable. Uh And I think there's there's an interesting question whether this simply defies neutral characterization, objective characterization, and whether it's inherently subjective, or whether we're kind of subtly missing the essence of what makes an influence operation an objectionable one. What do you think alicia are we is there is there some definition? That is eluding us, or is this a kind of Potter Stewart pornography situation?
3: I I don't I don't know that last reference. Oh yes, it's it's oh, the American. It's I know when porn when see I it. see it. Got it. Yeah. yeah, just it was the yeah. I've only ever really heard the quote. The um. God, that's. I so think refreshing. it is. Someone that doesn't know that reference. Holy
0: oh, no. she knows the reference. It's I know just, the reference. It's just <laughs> this is the it. Canadian side of her.
2: No, I know. I like that she knew the reference, but didn't know the citation. Like I like it. Well, was Potter so nice.
0: Stewart is so infinitely forgettable.
3: Yes, he is. I, it's hard to. There's just. There. uh, Never mind. Um, The uh, I I, we do we have a problem with definitions in this space, and we've had it for years. This is the thing that's incredibly frustrating: is that we go from meetings to meetings, level setting, trying to like decide what the words are, and then the next thing is like, do we do do we agree what the problem is? And so I feel like there's an endless loop that we're not really getting out of. So much so it's driven me to write papers about definitions, and I hate definitions. so we, what has happened in the past is we euphemize what we don't like and we call what we do something acceptable. So information operations, which I saw coming up in the chat, is usually a military term and it's uh, the efforts that the military will undertake in order to influence the situation. Um, we would call what the enemy does propaganda or active measures or something else entirely. Um, and that's how we've made these lines in the sand, but they're never really based again on these kinds of like objective metrics or something to be able to cut a line in the sand. Can we find one? I'm not sure. The second question would be, if we're dealing with things after they've already happened, isn't the damage done if there is damage at all? And so we're not really on a proactive footing to deal with even the malicious things that we might not like and can agree on. Um, I guess I would say we probably need to maybe look at this information environment as a system itself. So can we find conditions that might be warning signs that problem follows? And can we start to measure things that way to, to intervene later? We don't really have those types of theories right now.
2: Can I, can I ask you had mentioned before the transparent that like you work on like the idea of transparency reports, like transparency reports from who and about what? And also like then I have a bunch of questions that come up when I work in this type of area about like what the trade offs are with transparency reports as solutions and like I'm kind of interested if they overlap um, with 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 this area.
3: Sure. and I. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I've got more questions in, than answers in general. I I have no solutions for anybody at this point in time. Um, so when it comes to transparency reporting, what I mean are more like the aggregated stats and explanations that illuminate how the companies run, what kind of data they might be sitting on, how they're making the decisions that they are. And I would argue that that needs to really be a comprehensive kind of approach. You're not going to get everything at once, but if you start to map it out, make some priorities, we may get some more light onto what's happening. Um, I'm also pretty much convinced at this point that For that to work, somebody's probably going to have to make them do it, and there's probably going to have to be rules governing it and an auditing process to ensure that it's accurate because trust is gone, unfortunately. Um, Now, the reason why I say that this would be important and helpful is probably for a different reason than most people would be after. So as I said, okay, I don't know if I actually said this. We don't really know much about how the information environment works as a system. Like, we just lack that. We don't see information flowing and understanding that in any other way than the messaging and tracking it. We don't know much about the effects of things like influence operations and we don't know much about the impact of interventions. So the next question we had at PCIO, the partnership was, why do we have these gaps? And so we dug in and the major reason is that Researchers don't have access to data. They're not even sure what data is available. If they go to companies like Facebook and ask for the data, the first question they get is, what kind of data do you want? Companies, well, the researchers may make a guess. And then the company's like, well, we don't have that data. So I can't give that to you. And it's just this chicken and an egg thing. So the first thing we need to know is what data is available. Transparency reporting would be one means to be able to get that, to be able to understand. The second thing we need are data sharing rules. So how are we going to have access to that? Who gets access? Who decides that? How? Can this be done in a safe way and for what purposes? But then the third thing is we need some sort of mechanism to facilitate that access, but also research collaboration, because testing things like interventions means you pretty much have to engage with the companies in most cases. And as a researcher who has worked with companies, it is fraught with peril for your own credibility, whether you're good or not. And so mm-hmm. it needs to be some mechanism that protects the independence of researchers engaging, but also feeds back into policy. So we don't just have these silos working on things and not really getting to any answers. Um, so, and that's why I say that it needs to be a comprehensive transparency reporting framework. We might not get everything at once, but think through all the areas we want reporting on and start to get it rolled out over time.
0: This is so important. Speaking of important, we have a really important poll (laughs) up uh, that I would like to get 100 percent participation in because I'm going to ask Alicia about it after Genevieve's question. Genevieve.
1: Um, So one of the things just listening to you uh, describe the landscape that you're trying to collect the data from or data, wherever we are the word, I don't know how to say it now, um, but when you're managing the different stakeholders, how much frustration and friction is there with their own goals? Because I imagine that our military concerns about being the subject of an influence operation are different than when we are trying to in- influence someone else. And I'm, I'm using us as just a, a state, we'll call it the state of Genovia, and just for argument's sake, that, I mean, how much, pushback do you get in terms of data collection? Are they willing to be transparent with you or even with their own policymakers? Because I mean, I would imagine that the corporate questions are complex, but they are still somewhat limited because you would need regulation in order to get the transparency arc that I think you described.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a complicated question. Um, Sorry. <laughs> so often what I find in dealing with governments and military, they're collecting data. Usually it's open source and they're using it for very different purposes. It's intelligence gathering and that's kind of hived off into its own thing. And sometimes it might be uh, done by the groups that are doing information operations. Um, Those two bodies don't always talk together between depending on the country. Um, And so that's one thing. Then you may have units inside the government who are trying to research things like disinformation, and they're collecting their own data, and they're doing their own research, and both of them look at it more from this kind of threat perspective. So it's not necessarily doing a longer analysis to understand whether these things are actually working or not, or whether if we did an intervention, what would be the impact of that? Um, The companies from my understanding, mostly do research more on the product side. So if it's a tweak, there may be research that they've done to understand the impact of that. Whether that sees the light of day is really a big question. When we looked at publicly disclosed interventions, so these are tweaks to the platforms that the various tech companies have done, only 8% even mentioned efficacy and none of them actually gave any findings. So we don't know whether it had an impact or worked or not. then I think when you start to peel back to the policy level, that may be where you get less research done, even internally to the companies. So the data tends to just be a mess. So it's a lot of different places, a lot of different types of data that could be aggregated. Even within a single company, it may not be standardized or uniform, or it may not even be aggregated at all in a way that could be shared. And then you've got all these different levels of what should be shared or not. So even on the transparency reporting, coming back to Kate's question, I'm not sure that all transparency reporting should be made public. It may be that it has to go to specific audiences like only a government should really be seeing this or only certain researchers who have had a vetting process. Some of it may be absolutely fit and safe for public consumption. Same thing on the data. If you get more and more down to granular data that discloses a person's identity and their interests and where they are and what they're doing, that becomes a lot more risky to to be able to put into the hands of, of anybody, including the company. So there's many questions there.
0: All right, so before we go to audience questions, I want you to take a look at poll questions two and three, which uh, admittedly is an unscientific sample, but I suspect we would see something similar if we replicated it with a scientific sample, which is to say that about 90% of our viewers are not particularly concerned about the effects of influence operations on themselves. But about ninety percent of our viewers are quite concerned about the effects of influence operation on others. I'm interested for your thoughts.
3: Um, ha by the I way I to. share this I
0: I think influence operations as applied to me are a fucking mugs game and anybody's free to try it but it's not going to succeed but I'm super worried about influence operations of effect on those buffoons who live around the corner from me
1: have you already been influenced I mean
0: <laughs> like I'm totally with our audience on this And I wonder, does it reflect, uh, you know, the fact that the in lieu of fun audience knows that we are the elite and we are immune from this stuff and the uh, public are a bunch of uh, uh, buffoons or does it reflect the fact that the nature of influence operations is that we all think we're immune from them but that our neighbors are captive to them.
3: I feel like I should just assign everybody Jacques Aurel's book, Propaganda. Propaganda, read it in English, obviously it's dense. Um, I think people generally have cognitive biases that lead them to believe that they're not gonna be susceptible to things. They're gonna be the exception. Uh, we also have a tendency to blame the victim. So, if we don't like that somebody's consuming a bunch of COVID misinformation, we want to find some reason to blame them for their choices because we don't perceive <laughs> <certainly> do. <laughs> that we could fall down the same <laughs> trap. The thing that I would say to everybody that answered that way is that it's usually not the people trying to change your mind that are the most effective at influencing you. It's the people who come from your community and already understand you. So if you've come to a place where you might be incapable of seeing other things, or questioning other things, you might have been already swayed and down a certain rabbit hole, it just might be one that you really like, and you're comfortable with.
0: Amen. Mike Godwin, uh, you're a a great American and uh, certainly immune from uh, influence operations and the floor is yours. I I
4: don't think I'm any more immune than anyone, but I do think that you can uh, acquire immunity and I have some thoughts about that, but maybe for another time The the. My question is, is there an epistemic crisis regarding influence operations? And the reason I ask is, is I wrote a book, I published a book a couple of years ago after doing, among other things, in my research, a deep dive on how effective um, motivational research is, how effective psychological warfare tactics are. And and what I found was that nobody knows. Essentially, no, literally, there is no... You know, there's no way nobody's even designing falsifiable, you know, experiments that that could be falsified uh, or that could falsify a theory. But at the same time, we're kind of confronted with the fact that, you know, if you spread something about ivermectin or hydrochloroquine, you know, somehow that propagates. You know, and it infects people's brains and they really genuinely or, or or you know, some pizza parlor in D.C. This stuff just th- infects people's brains. And so what What? how do we accommodate that? How do we explain that? And my thought. And, and so this is my real question, because I always like to change the question from what I post to to what I really want to ask when you put me on camera. Um, My real question is, isn't this isn't the the quiet part out out loud there, Godwin. Godwin. No, no, I just say this. You already know this, Ben, unless you haven't been watching when I've been on the show. before. Um, So I think that I think that the isn't the real question, not the sort of the power of the meme or the power of the influence operation or the power of the particular narrative that's being propagated, but the vulnerabilities of the population so that if you have populations that are facing, you know, climate change, income inequity, you know, mass migrations around the world, you know, all sorts of things like that. So they're ready to find an explanation for the things that are inexplicable. And that's what makes them vulnerable. That's uh, anyway, that's my question, my hypothesis. And I thought maybe I would see if you thought it was a worthwhile idea.
3: I mean, yes, it, it is in short, uh, I think, I would take it out another level because somebody who might be vulnerable today might not be the person who's susceptible the next day. And really it comes down to how does the information environment, how do we make decisions based on the information environment and where we get our information? Like, can we look at that and kind of get to people types and, and understand what, and it's not about what sways them. It's, it's about what might be, the effect of them making a decision, right? Like what goes into it? And there's myriad things and most research tends to always zero in on one little thing and it may not be that one thing. Um, so for example, coming back to the what you've just articulated, I can't help but shake we saw the pandemic coming, right? We knew that there was this virus. We also knew that people have the same reaction, the same part of the brain that is activated when they're in a fearful situation is activated in an ambiguous situation and they feel discomfort. And one of the things they go to do is to try to find information, to try to find answers. And humans, none of us, we're all simple creatures let's face it and 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 so that means that sometimes it's the simplest most direct answer that people will grasp onto so we knew this was coming and yet when we were faced with this we left it to pretty much solitary health officials who did not have training really great training to cut through really complex information environments to get to the public. We had politicians attacking them. We had media, at least in your country, was focused more on Fauci's relationship with Trump than communicating any message that made any sense. And then we didn't exactly boast, we didn't have the system set up to make sure that people were getting really reliable information everywhere they searched. This came much later in the pandemic when the companies started to try to position that stuff. We could have been ready for this. This isn't something that was unimaginable. We could have systems set up to actually ensure that people are getting fed better quality information from the get-go, but it needs to be simple. It needs to to resonate and and I don't know. This can I push can I push back on that a little and say that
2: like I I agree with I, I agree that we could have I mean, I think that there, there are better ways that we could have information and a lot of what you characterize what happened in the U S is very accurate. I, I mean, but the entire idea of like the CDC, like the CDC is one of the information systems that's supposed to get information out to the public. Right. And so like, and they didn't know, like there was actually like a dearth of information and a dearth of science. And so like in that, so like, yes, people are like rapaciously searching for answers because they're fucking panicked. And that's what, like, people do cognitively, like, when they, like, want answers. But, like, in their defense and the existing systems defense, there wasn't information to necessarily feed people, even after the virus had existed in China. And, like, we didn't know exactly the transmission mechanism of the virus, even, like, the Chinese didn't know what the the transmission mechanism of the virus was. Like and it had existed for months before it had reached the US, obviously. There was a secondary order of problems of all of the politicians and everything that you're talking about and the craziness of a unmediated, ungatekeepered social media and political landscape. But I will say that like I actually like that. I think that there is there is a I think that there's like maybe, I really do wonder here, like whether or not like we did in in that situation, the secondary order thing is like one set of problems, but it was greatly exacerbated by the fact that there was no clear information that could even be messaged because the message was like the information and the science was changing so rapidly that it deteriorated trust and there was just room for lots of other noise and there was no clear signal. I'm like mixing up a bunch of metaphors but I think you kind of get what I'm saying.
3: Yeah, I, I guess my issue with this is that even in the absence of having answers, that that needs to be communicated over and over again. And the, the funneling to people back to the reliable sources when it comes out is important. But even that didn't really seem to happen. I mean... Yeah, but, like, what happened when the
2: CDC was, like, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. It's all, like, spread through hands. And then, like... And and then it was kind of like, oh, I guess not. And not that we shouldn't all still be washing our hands, and that wasn't good, but, like, that was not the main source of how it was transmitted. And then I feel like that fomented all of the... I, sorry, I'm also not, like, arguing with you. Like, and you know, like, I'm not, like, challenging your hypothesis. I'm just, like, kind of trying to actually kind of get to myself about how to think about how this could have. Because I I think that, like, I listened to everything the CDC said and after a while, and I'm, like, fairly, like, numerate and have, like, a good scientific background. And I even was, like, okay, do I really trust the CDC? Like, they are just... Another group of scientists that are like employ- like that know, seem to know no more and no less than like anyone else. And like there was like these moments of doubt that I had and because their message changed so often. And I'm just curious, like what you I mean, I don't know if that was like unique to the US. Did similar things happen in Canada? Were you getting things like that from
3: were you listening to R C D C for your information? Like how is that being how is that being transmitted? I don't want to show my political biases. I think we kind of gave up on you guys <clears throat> early on in that. Um, oh, are we yeah. so we have a chief <laughs> we have a chief medical officer and um, again, she was kind of like she was put forward by our prime minister. He was once it became apparent that we were really in deep shit. can I swear on here? the uh he, oh yeah he started doing daily it's required pre- okay okay because i can i can drop a lot more than that um great our, our vp of Congress have at it somewhere dude. now uh the so they would do these daily press briefings and really not tell us anything uh the problem was that Tamber early on teresa tam is her name she there were two things one was that she was adamantly against quarantines um, and said that they would be discriminatory and that they very m- may well have been, of course, this you know opened up the borders to everything. We didn't exactly have a system going on very early on. These are like early weeks, this is into March, right? Uh, the second thing was she was like the WHO telling people that masks weren't effective. And, and in truth, they're not a hundred percent effective get that. But if they reduce any spread at all, then it might be worth it. Now, of course, you have yeah, the we had other a period problems. in
2: time in which I forget how long it was here, but it was like two or it was only two or three days, I think. But this is what I mean. Like the messaging went from masks aren't effective to like, you have to wear a mask everywhere you go. And the reason that we heard afterwards was like, and I still don't even know the whole story about this because of all the shit that was going down at the time and like how crazy everything was. I was teaching Genevieve property law, like, try, moving across the country, trying to, anyways. But like the messaging that we heard at the time was like, oh, that was just to protect the PPE so that there wasn't like a run on the PPE for like critical workers that like really needed it. And like, I was like, really?
1: <laughs> Talk <laughs> like, about signaling zero it? confidence in your citizenry.
3: Right. which so is like, exactly what I was yeah. going to say, but that's Sorry, what I had. I didn't mean to No, th- I mean, that's, that's exactly one of the reasons why I suspect that messaging was put out, right? Because there was a rush on it. And it's like, the it's, it's, well, there's no data actually to back up the booster shot. As far as my doctor told me this week, uh, it's kind of like that, right? Where you've got the rest of the world needs the vaccine. So don't go and do this. You guys don't need a third shot. Move it out. Doesn't, the question is still open as to whether we need it or not. And of course, the countries that have it are going to run for it. Same with the masks, the people are going to run for masks. I guess my only point here is that I mean, the main point here is that, okay, we might not have answers immediately. There's a messy information environment in which this stuff is occurring. We have media that, you know, for different reasons and in democracy is ungoverned itself, and we can't control necessarily how they're covering it. They're a big chunk of this, right? And so if their coverage is going back and forth, criticizing, showing both sides, which it's supposed to do, um, this all becomes a problem. And, and when we looked at the media coverage in the leading up, so it was like just up until April, uh, when the US, UK and Canada, the US was disproportionately covering the relationship between Fauci and Trump, right? So if this is the place where everybody's getting their media, then they go to social media and TikTokers are licking toilets to catch the virus. I mean people are just going to keep digging for any answer that satisfies us right it's uh and and this is the issue so i i think there's better ways to tweak the system even if we don't have the answer to keep putting up in front of them we don't have an answer yet it's coming we're working on it calm down wash your hands i mean it is the best that we can do but it has to be more synchronized we can't just have a bunch of different medical doctors coming out and saying different things many who are not scientists uh there needs to be more careful, I think, selection of coverage by media, who they bring on and who they talk to. Maybe they need to be better trained. Maybe there does need to be some coordinated effort. And here's the slippery slope. If you start to control the media, at what point do you now live in a state that it is not free and open? I
2: don't have Yeah, I was it. just going to say that. I was like, so great. We get one doctor that gets it fucking wrong, and we get them on TV for the whole time, and then we just wait for them to correct. It. Like, well, like, this is like, you know, no, I'm like not questioning you, but I'm just like, like, I, it's just a very, this is my All right.
3: pain.
0: I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to, sh- I'm going to, because we have done violence. Shailesh, we, love- we have done violence to Shailesh here <laughs> who has been violently Alice in a fashion Sorry, that nobody Shailesh. since Alice has actually experienced.
5: Bava Dakar, the floor is yours. Well, after waiting so long, I I hope my question makes any sense at all. That would be really good. So, so okay, here we go. So, so we try to reason about the world around us one news article at a time, and I, I think words suck and numbers suck a lot less in conveying information. So, <laughs> so is it like basically my question is: Is it fair to say that we don't have good quantitative measures of Propaganda campaigns, misinformation, and how they spread. And I'll give one example to sort of from from my work. At, at, I can't go into details. Um, so after Las Vegas shooting, there was this guy named Jesus Campos who was who worked at that hotel. And there was like uh, dark in the dark corners of the internet. There was groundswell of kind of bullshit about how he was the perpetrator. And then there was a by the time you that information percolated to Fox News, they just said enough to cast doubt on his character, but didn't really say anything insanely crazy. So there is like a pyramid here of how the information is spreading. And this kind of stuff happens literally constantly, nonstop. And often the same people are doing it. Are we measuring this like When you look at the picture in quantitative sense about how this is developing, it looks less, lot less unclear than when we look at one news article. Yes.
3: Uh, And and there's different things that would have to be measured there. And sometimes those require different types of studies. So one is like how, what is the actual flow of information? Where is, you know, the first bit of a claim coming from? And how is it moving to different influencers across different platforms into media and back again? Um, We don't exactly have great systemic study of the information environment. And that's a huge problem. That into itself is a problem. Um, Then the second thing is, you know, what's the impact of those. Um, And those types of studies are are, are a lot harder to do, because you're looking, unless you can research, like measure the way that people change their behavior as a result, and the internet is kind of good for that, you can see where they go afterwards, in some cases, you can see if they're taking certain actions, but it's really hard to discern whether they've changed their mind or not, um, if that has had any impact. So it's hard to do, we need more of it. it. It's expensive. Um, I didn't realize how expensive it is to, to
0: fund those studies. Sorry, that was uh, just background noise. Um, is, are you finished with your point? No, I, I did.
3: I just pulled a really Canadian and let my inflection go up at the end. So, yeah, gotcha. Sure okay. Wait, is that
2: a Canadian thing? Because you've been doing that the whole time and it's confused the hell out of me.
3: Holy cow. I'm like, I think you're pivoting. I think you're
2: pivoting. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, she's going to say something. And then you just stop. I'm
4: like. <laughs>
0: Steve Wilkerson, the floor is yours.
4: Uh, it seems to me that advertising is one major form of information operations and that untold millions of dollars have been spent to study every single aspect of, uh, of advertising from content to format to uh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to try to list them. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? It seems to me that that's a major piece of, of research for you uh, already done or being done constantly.
3: Yes. And so, uh, again, I actually started out Well, I shouldn't say that I was always interested in things leaders use to manipulate the masses and encourage them to, like, go to their deaths or do really horrible things, because I would love to know why humans do the things they do. Um, but nobody really cared when I graduated from Russian. Uh, and I had to take other jobs. So one of the things I did eventually do was work in strategic communications where I was running campaigns. So the first research I had looked at was more on the behavioral advertising side of the things. So this is about actually you know, running campaigns and making change. The problem with a lot of that literature, and that was looked at for the effects research that Princeton had done for us. But the problem with that literature is it's a lot easier to convince people to buy something. It's a lot easier to measure it. You've got some very simple action. You've got some way that you could have pushed them to go and do it. So you have some frame of reference to be able to study what's happening and what might make them tick to do that. It's a lot different when you don't know who's doing the actual campaign. What's the reason they're doing it? Much of it looks like it's just a mess. I mean, it's a lot harder to analyze that and study that. So looking at real examples in the wild are are a lot harder. People keep talking about Canada in the the chat and I, I can't help but look
0: it's exotic and different you know um no we have uh we we have a large canadian contingent in the audience which we call the greek chorus one of whom is eve Gumong, who is here with a canada oriented question you two really should know each other uh uh eve, the floor is yours you get the last question today
1: Hi, right, Alicia. Pleased to meet you. Um, yeah, my question is very, very Canadian. Actually, is what do you think of the Canadian government's proposed approach to address online uh, harmful content? Horrible.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> horrible. Horrible. Between Why is it horrible? And-
0: what is it, and and what is horrible about it?
3: Okay. First of all, I and and I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Kate and Ben, to even admit this. Um, actually, all three of you. Now that I know this, I have ne- led. I have legislative narcolepsy. So at the best of time, legis- and I was a legislative assistant. This is how I discovered it.
1: I love that I fall phrase.
3: asleep <laughs> in just is reading this, it. But I did
2: is this a diagnosis I can like put on like a medical form? To get out of things. Like, like if I
0: you bring know. if you bring up Joe Manchin and his impact on the Build Back Better build, we will fall asleep. It's not a-
3: amazing. <laughs> I I'm feel like it should it. be. I. I haven't, I, I've been looking for others in the, in the wild. If anybody else has legislative narcolepsy, please let me know. Uh,
2: I, I think it's a thing I just have I'm amnesia. Concerned. Like I read like one thing and then I forget it, whatever the fuck it says, like five seconds later and like what any of the acronyms stand for. Sorry. I keep interrupting you, but like, yes, I just like, <laughs> I, I just hate it.
3: So... I, I, there were two, there were two bills. One was a change, uh, and, and another one was, well, one was a change to our broadcast act that got passed, which is Bill C-10, um, which is like super vague and it looks like it's letting the CRTC now govern online broadcasts, which may or may not include social media posts. Nobody really knows. Um, the one that has just, yeah, the one that's coming out now on the online harms, I think it's geared more towards, um, like hate speech and things like this uh the pro there are many problems with it uh and i'm not a lawyer i mm, i don't remember what it's called off the top of my head because clearly i fall asleep when i'm looking at it um (laughs) The the UK has one, too. That one was also bad and worse. Oh, yeah. I I I didn't
2: know Canada
3: had its own. I. Oh, yes, we've got one that's like now starting to come through and and our privacy commissioner wasn't even shown it or asked about it, which is really alarming because, yes, we have a privacy commissioner and he should be she they should be used appropriately, uh, especially on things that may impact uh, Canadians online behavior and commenting. Um, in general, what I will say about a lot of the legislation that's been coming down from different countries in this space is one, you want another problematic definition? Harm. Um, We actually just had one of our advisors shared some uh, preliminary research they've been doing looking at different taxonomies around harm and risk, and uh, the vast majority of them didn't really give a definition. I keep saying vast majority. I'm going to get called out again on the chat about that. A lot of them did not even offer a definition of harm. Um, Many of them also conflate harm and risk. And then the second thing is like how do you actually kind of determine whether there is a harm there so drawing a bill around it seems to me like it's it's jumping the gun a little bit however
2: no kidding of, sorry. <laughs> what
3: i do like about some of these things that are coming out and that is not really happening in our bills in canada is uh the ones that do include something around transparency reporting now the issue there is the devil's in the detail most of them are like we shall make the companies do transparency reporting with like no articulation of how that's going to work we're going to put that out to a working group afterwards and then often it gets narrowed down to a specific subset like ads which is like we're in
2: the same meeting i'm thinking of moving to canada and you're making it much less attractive
3: if i have to be in the same meeting (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I work mostly, well, I work internationally, but I I work a lot in the U.S., so.
0: So we are out of time.
3: I have a question.
0: Yes.
2: It's completely irrelevant, but I'm going to ask it anyways, since we're in such a Canadian-themed episode. Alicia, Alicia, have you heard of the Raccoon Whisperer on YouTube? No, but we used to have a show called the raccoons. Ooh. Okay. I'm putting the link in the chat. There is this guy in Nova Scotia who um, feeds like 15 pounds of hot dogs to like a pack of like 45 raccoons that all come to his deck and claw all over him and he feeds them raw hot dogs. And And he's he's going to die
0: of rabies.
2: And no, he doesn't have rabies. Uh, Not yet. And he feeds them like these hot dogs and he's called the Raccoon Whisperer. And I think he has like 8 million followers on YouTube. And he's just like this guy in the woods in Nova Scotia. And he's like, if they didn't have me, they'd all starve to death. And these raccoons are like the size of small elephants. And they are just like enormous. And he's just like with his like Canadian accent, just like. Feeding these like raccoons, these like things, and they're just like, wah, 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 like, and it's just an Like, I really promise you, if you do nothing, it'll just like cheer you up today. So, like, we don't, maybe we go. don't have an
3: accent. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. I also, know. I thought that neither was, do we. Like, <laughs>
3: yeah, that's like, like Russian YouTube. That's like Russian YouTube is like mostly animals. Like, yeah, nonstop I mean, animals. Like, what, I mean, it's very cold in all of these places.
2: So,
0: we yeah. are gonna leave it there. Alicia Wanless, I usually tell people they're great Americans, but you are a great Canadian. Um and uh uh and uh it was a pleasure talking to you. Come back and influence us again. Um uh we will be back tomorrow. Uh do we have a guest for tomorrow? No, well we'll find one. Um and that'll be sometime in the next 22 hours and 56 minutes from now. And until then, Genevieve de la Ferra,
1: We don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have dog shirts on their way and customer service with senses of humor, hopefully in the future.
0: And can we I, have
2: a hippie that, like,
1: dog no shirt.
2: Who, no one in their lifetime has ever gotten a response back in two minutes from customer service, Ben, and complained about it as much as you.
0: No, like, I'm I mean, sorry. Like, I put work. I put work into that email. I, you know, I was proud of that email. I sent it to you guys. I, I sent it to Eve well, Gouman. I, know. I, I know. was proud of that email, and they responded with the like, "Dude, I'm sorry we inconvenienced you." Not. It wasn't even signed ms or mr clothing monster
2: you already monster. told it. You already
0: to- yes we know i'm i'm just offended that like the art of correspondence is dying i'm i would retaliate against clothing monster except that i don't know anywhere to get dog shirts as cool as the one that genevieve is wearing other than clothing monster so genevieve yeah there it is The awesome dog shirt. Wait, wait, one more time. We
2: have to end the show. (laughs) Uh,
0: We will see you tomorrow.